Amen. Thank you, Brother Mike. Thank you, ladies. As, uh, as you have a moment to take a seat, we want to invite the kids to go to Children's Church this morning. We do that, try to do it the first Sunday of every month, but this uh, particular Sunday, uh, last Sunday, uh, Sandy was down uh, in Denver with our daughter preparing for weddings. Yay. So, uh, <laughs> it was, it was good. I'm thrilled. Um, yes, my only daughter. Okay, moving on. Um, while you have your Bibles, um, I encourage you to open up to the book of Malachi, chapter 1. We're going to be in the Old Testament a little bit today, and then we're going to be in the New Testament a little bit more today, and uh, hopefully when it's all said and done, we'll know that we have been uh, surrounded by the Word of God and uh, influenced, permeated, changed. Malachi should be the last Bible, last book in the, New, in the Old Testament as we make that uh, march towards the cross, as Malachi was one of the final words that God used uh, to express his, uh, his desire for change in his people, as he um, desired something different to happen. And as we're looking at this, I'm going to be reading this in a moment, but the question that I'm posing you guys, and I guess this is really the, the t- title of the sermon, at least I may change that, I'm not sure, but right now, I'm just the question I'm asking is, is what is the church for? We, last week, we talked about what the church was. We recognized that the church isn't the building. We know that. We recognize the church is us. We are the body of Christ. We are the ones that are, um, that are being called out from among uh, the world. The ecclesia, that's the word that we use for church in the New Testament. It means the called out ones. We know this. And so as, as, as we are, are working through this uh, plan, this pathway, as we're, we're asking these things, the natural question that comes out of this is, is what is the church for? And so, in light of that, this week I was thinking to myself, um, how, what would be like a good opening illustration? How can I bring this out to you guys? And, and I kept thinking to myself um, that, you know, God has told us what he wants the church to do, right? He's given us instructions. It's not like it's complicated. Now, God didn't give us a manual on how to do church, right? He didn't, he didn't say that, that every Sunday morning you'll gather at 11 o'clock and that you'll sing three songs, you'll take an offering, you'll sing another song or two, and then you'll get to a sermon, and hopefully it's not too long, and, and eventually you'll step out of the building and you'll go have Sunday supper. I mean, that's, it's not like he laid that out. If we had a format like that, many of the problems we've had over the last 2,000 years since he left, Left, um, would have been totally alleviated. We wouldn't have had to worry about all these different complicated ways that we do the Lord, do, do um, church. But I asked myself, okay, if he gave us instructions and, and, and we're not doing it, then that's got to be really rough. Now imagine if you walked over after church is over with, you know, and about one o'clock or so, and you guys are heading towards Paradiso's right down the road. Now you guys go there occasionally, some of you have eaten there, and I like going there now and then, and, and what if you sat down and the, the, the waitress comes in and has this really nice um, uh, attitude, real bubbly personality, she's all friendly, she gets you the water, asks for your drinks, gets everything you need, takes your order, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I know what I would order, I love their Euro platter, so I'm thinking, yeah, I want that, and, so, and just thinking about about that my, my mouth is already watering. I'm thinking about the feta cheese combined with that lamb and beef mixture, some tzatziki sauce, a little bit of pita bread. That'd be a phenomenal thing. And I'm just sitting there, and I, the whole time I know I'd be thinking, this is what I want, right? And so the, the nice, bubbly, wonderful waitress comes back in a few minutes later with your order, and she comes down and sets down in front of you a nice plate of eggplant lasagna. Some of you say, oh, I like eggplant lasagna. I'm going to tell you now, 
I don't. Not even a little bit. I don't think I would be really happy if I ordered a gyro platter that my taste buds were planning for gyro meat and feta cheese and all the goodness that comes from that. And they gave me eggplant. And I think sometimes that's what we do to God. You know, he's given us the orders, right? And we've said, oh, yes, God, we will do that. We will do this. We will do that. But we're going to do it our way, right? So, so what ends up happening is, is we end up giving God an eggplant piece of whatever. And he doesn't want that. See, he's called us to be his church, and he's given us instructions. And I'd like to say that this is a new thing, right? That the church is, that this is something that we're just now beginning to realize, oh my goodness, that, that, that we're struggling with this. You see, church attendance has been falling away for a long time. That it's been in decline in the United States of America. We know this. We see that you get, look around, we have more empty chairs some Sundays than we have full chairs. And it's always a challenge. We ask ourselves, and as pastors, you know, we get caught up in that rat race of how do we draw more people in? Because obviously, worshiping God is boring. What? How can what we were created for be boring? But that's what you hear sometimes in the community. And I'm thinking to myself, this can't be, this can't be a new thing, right? Well, it wasn't. It happened in the days of uh, Malachi. This is what he had to say about it. If you, if you have your Bibles, open up to Malachi chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 6. And we're going to go through to verse 14, the end of the chapter. And so, follow along with me, if you will. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then, if I am the father, this is God speaking, if I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And now many of you are thinking to yourself, wait a minute, how have I despised God's name? How have I not given God what he wanted? Let's keep reading, because obviously this is, this is the days of Malachi, so maybe it's not really applying to us. I don't know. So God continues. He says, you are presenting defiled food on my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you in what you say when you say the table of the Lord is to be despised? But when you present the blind sacrifice, is that not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor or people that you respect? Would he be pleased with you? Or would you receive or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Pretty powerful question. Now we can say, oh, that's the days of Malachi. And fortunately for us, we don't do uh, animal sacrifices anymore, right? So we don't have to worry about that. Well, yeah, but I think we talked about last week that, our, that, that if we are the body of Christ and, and we are the church, and according to the New Testament, we are supposed to be living sacrifices, right? So we are the sacrifices, right? So are we offering God our best? That's what it says here, right? Because they're presenting the blind animal for sacrifice. They're, they're presenting the lame and the sick animal that they can't cut themselves up and use for their own household. And so, is that not evil is what God says? When we don't offer what we're best? I mean, think about this. And I, you know, I have a chance some, day, some weeks to be able to spend time with teenagers. And, and it's amazing to me when they want to turn in homework or schoolwork. And, you know, and they, they like rush the last minute. And what they turn in is just pathetic. And I feel for our teachers here. You guys have a lot of grace. 
And I, I talk to these students, and I'm telling them, you guys don't know how good you have it, really. Because you teachers accept a lot of things you shouldn't accept. I'll be honest with you. Um, I wonder if we're really preparing the next generation for life. Because we're, I don't think we are. Um, that's my own opinion. Uh, and, and I think to myself sometimes, this is what we're doing. We're, we're, we're allowing these people to give the substandard offerings. We do it to God, too. We give him our, our last instead of our first. We give him our least instead of our best. And we do it all the time. And then we turn to God like verse 9 and say, well, God, we just gave you this wonderful sacrifice. Are you going to now favor us? God's like, I almost can't. I, don't, I, I read the sarcasm in here, right? I don't know if you guys do. It's almost like God is upset. He's angry. Really? Angry that he's not getting our best? Who would think? Look what verse 10 says. Oh, that you were one among us, uh, that, uh, that there were one among you that would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Pretty powerful. Now, what is he saying there? What he's saying is that if we continually offer substandard sacrifices of ourselves to God, God would rather us shut the doors, lock them, and never come in this building again and call ourselves a church. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? That's what he says. Hmm. Verse 11. From the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, and my name will be great among nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in, what, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. So also you say, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame and sick, and you bring it and you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who, is ma- who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices the blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared to among nations. It's a pretty powerful statement. And I know that often, uh, oftentimes we are tempted to look at, the, well, that was... 3,000 years ago. That was a long time ago. That was during a time when, when they had those problems. We don't really have those problems, right? So I ask myself, are we, are we guilty of the same thing? Are we guilty of, of, of going to church and doing church rather than being the church? Imagine like first century Peter and, and Paul gathering together, right? And like meeting each other at, say, like, you know, Walmart, Palestine, right? And they're just walking through the aisles together. They got their carts. And, and they happen to bump into each other, right, in, in the frozen food section. Because yeah, they had that back then, right? Yeah. And, and Peter turns to Paul and says, hey, Paul, how you doing? And Paul turns to Peter, really good. How's the wife? How's the kids? And Peter says, oh, doing fantastic. You can imagine this conversation, right? Yeah. And then, and then, and then Peter says, hey, so what's, what you doing right now? Where are you going to church? And, and Paul says, well, I'm going to this little fellowship over there near the river. They, they call themselves the Holiness First Pentecostal Gathering of blah, blah, blah. And, P, and Peter, Peter says to Paul, oh, wow, that's pretty, that's just unique. So how's that going for you? Well, it's okay, but I'm not really sure about it. 
And Peter then turns to Paul and says, well, hey, our church that we've been going to, we're not really getting a whole lot out of it. Think we can come and go to church with you this next Sunday? You measure Paul saying, well, maybe, but I've got this thing I've got to do. I've got this really good friend of mine who likes to play hockey, and, or, and, and he's only playing on Sundays. And, and so I'm going to be doing hockey next Sunday. I won't be going to church. Maybe we'll do it the next Sunday. Is that a plan? And I can see Peter saying, sure, and I'll bring the kids, and we'll, have, we'll make a day of it. Can you imagine that kind of conversation happening between Peter and Paul? No. No, not even. That would never happen. But yet we had that conversation a lot. Truth is, they did a study not too long ago of some of the things that the church wants, needs, thinks that's important for them. Let me give you the list of some of the things that, that they feel like that is a good thing. So, so the average church wants a good sermon clearly articulated. Uh, they want a good children's program. Maybe even a little step further, maybe an age-specific ministries as they, as they start to lay out some things. So we have a good children's program, maybe a youth group that's active, a singles ministry, college and career, whatever you want to call it, some great music that's on stage, maybe, a, maybe an electric guitar along with the bass that we have, maybe, maybe a, a better drum set, you know, um, some music that really kicks out there and just, you know, you can feel in your chest and makes it, makes it move. Good parking was on the list, you know, a silly thing like that, good parking, this is what a church really needs a child care that's a must right you can't we talk about all the time in our leadership meetings i mean 90 percent of the things that we that i just listed are things that we talk about on a leadership meeting this is what we need to have in our church but you know the commands that god gave to us for a church i wonder where they are you know the, the commands to, to love one another that we see in in john chapter 15 in fact let's turn there john chapter 15 So we see in John chapter 15, starting in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I loved you. We can take it back a step further. We can can go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, but but man, I mean, this is just laying out. This is gold. This is golden stuff. This is red letter stuff. This is Jesus' words. He says in verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, so that you be be proved to be my disciples. Verse 9, just as the father has loved me, I also have loved you and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things... I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be made full. Greater love, verse 13, has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his, for his friends. And then he goes on and talks a little more. That's John chapter 15, love one another. Here's a really unique study you could do with your kids if you're so inclined. You ever just write down all the verses, there's like a hundred or so verses in the New Testament, the one another verses, right? And just do a study on all the times that God uses the word one another. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, walk with one another, care for one another. Amazing how that is. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, we're not going to read that, but he's commanded us to make disciples of all nations. James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to help the widows and the orphans in their distress and keep oneself unspotted from the world. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. These are the commands. 
Now, when you put them out in separate like that, and you start looking at the list of what the average church wants, and we look at, the, at what the average thing that God wants, you can obviously see that this is a, this is a gyro platter versus an eggplant dish combination, right? And to put it in theological terms, you know, it's because we want to be spiritual, right? We are recording this, so I probably ought to be a little spiritual. We can look at this in the Old Testament way, and I feel you, you'll appreciate this, bringing that Old Testament in. There was this dude, his name was Cain, remember him? He came and brought an offering he thought was acceptable to the Lord. He put it down there, and he said, God, be happy with my grain offering because it's so cool. And Abel came over and says, Lord, please accept this offering I'm humbly giving to you as the first of my flock, as you commanded us, as I'm offering a blood sacrifice in anticipation of the Christ that will come and cover our blood, cover our sins with his blood. Now, obviously, Abel didn't say all those things, but we know that we don't have recorded that he said all those things. We're pretty sure that that was something along the conversation. So I have to ask myself, in this, in this discussion of the two different offerings that we're thinking about giving to God, the one where we're asking for you know, all the good parking and children's pro, uh, programs, things like that, and not that these are bad things, but maybe these are things we're trying to offer in the wrong way. Maybe that is in the spirit of Cain, maybe, that we're offering these things. Huh. That's interesting. I know I'm stepping on toes because you guys aren't speaking. There's a lot of quietness out there. And maybe if I'm here next week, we'll expound this a little further. <laughs> maybe I won't be. But while we're, <laughs> while we're working through this uh, discussion, let's go over and look at Luke chapter 12. Just over a book or two from John. In Luke chapter 12, you know, you say, well, that's, that's really nice. You say that about, you know, John. But what does Luke have to say? Is it, are we going to draw more from what? from what Jesus had to tell us. Well, you know, it's interesting. Jesus actually had. Uh, he actually had some commandments about this. He actually had some parables about this. Um, and this particular chapter, chapter 12 is a pretty long chapter. Um, man, it goes down to 59 verses. So we go about halfway down, about 35, verse 35. We're gonna, I'm just going to read this to you. This is a, a prayer, this is a parable concerning faithfulness. And so Jesus is speaking to the masses, he's speaking to his disciples, he's sharing from his heart, he wants us to know what's, what, what's in his mind, and, and he wants us to, to hear this message because I think it's, it's deep and abiding and it happened to them, it also happens to us. He says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit, he says. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so they may immediately open the door when he comes in and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that, that he will gird himself to serve and, and have them recline at the table and will come and wait upon them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, when he finds them so, blessed are those slaves." But be sure of this, that the head of the house had known what hour the thief was coming. He would not have allowed the house to be broken into. And you too, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's a pretty good parable. We like that. That's pretty solid. And I guess we can extrapolate some things from this that are spiritual and interesting. So we can ask ourselves, are we ready for the master to return? And I think everybody is sitting here this morning and say, oh, yes, yes, we're ready for the return. Please, Jesus. We even see the song, even now, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. We, we, we want that to happen, right? So, so I ask myself then, who are we trying to please on Sunday mornings? Think about it. When we gear our services towards things, and we gear what we're doing, uh, who are we trying to please? Is this pleasing God, or are we trying to please men? Huh. Are we honoring traditions, things we do all the same, 
over the commands of God. You know, Peter was concerned about this. And Peter oftentimes had to put Jesus straight, right? He did it all the time in the gospel. I love when he does that. Peter comes up and says, Jesus, you really not say that. And, and, and Jesus was so meek and mild, he'd always say, oh, you're right, Peter. I appreciate that. You know more than I do. You're older than I am. You've got a finger on the pulse of the people. I understand. We want this ministry to grow. We want it to succeed. And so I'm not going to do anything. You're right, Peter. He said that all the time, right? No. He told Peter what it was for. He said, Peter, look, man, you got to get a grip. That's Alwise's translation. But here's Peter here. He says, he says Lord, are you, addressing, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? I love that. You know, he's got to differentiate, right? He has to fill this out. He wants to know. Peter wants to know, are we the sinners you're talking about? Are we the ones that are worried or is it everyone? And here's what the Lord says. <laughs> he, asks, he answers the question with a question. Who then is the faithful and the sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says to his heart, my master will be long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves and and both men and women and eat and drink and get drunk, And the master of that slave will come on a day that he does not expect him. And at an hour where he does not know, he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That's pretty harsh. And the slave knew, the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed the deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Well, that's a pretty, pretty harsh statement if you think about it. We've been entrusted with the knowledge of the living God. We have been indwelt with the Spirit of God. And when we come in here on Sunday mornings, I wonder, do we expect something supernatural to happen? I mean, think about it. When you're getting up in the morning and, and you're just starting to get ready for the day, you know, and you're, you're deciding whether you're going to wear the, the, the good-looking red shoes or the not-so-good-looking blue shoes, and you're deciding whether or not you're going to put this shirt or this outfit goes with this, and, and you're wondering what kind of toothpaste you may be using. At any point in that time before you come to church, you think, man, I can't wait to get there because something amazing is going to happen, something supernatural, Right? And you say, wait a minute, Pastor, you're getting in the realm of Pentecostals. You better be really careful. You know this is a Baptist church, right? We don't do that kind of stuff. Really? We serve a supernatural God that tells us to love unconditionally. That's, in other words, in Al Weeks' translation, when you say love unconditionally, that's supernatural love, right? We're being called to... Does anybody in here know any church in America that's known for supernatural love? Does anybody here know if our church is known as supernatural kind of love? Oh, pastor, we're a loving congregation. You're you're off track. I'm not saying you're not loving, but are we supernatural about our love? Hmm. That's interesting. Think about this. I've known churches 
they pulled out the pitchforks and the torches, got all up in arms when the pastor canceled Sunday school. I've known churches that have split because the style of the song service changed. I've known churches that have split and pastors that have been railroaded out of town because the color of the carpet wasn't up to spec. And those same churches are filled with same members that don't even bat an eye at the absence of the Lord's Supper or the lack of help towards widows and orphans. It's hard to believe that a 45 to 50 minute sermon is not commanded for us to do in Scripture. You ever think about that? I know some of you are saying, well, good. Dark it down to 15. <laughs> Let's get out of here early, right? You know, I wish I could. Truth of the matter is, as much as you guys would, I know sometimes encourage me to go, to go slower or to go longer or to go quicker or to get out of here earlier, I'm an extemporaneous speaker. I am who I am. I've been preaching for 25 years. I preach until God tells me to shut up. Not to you, not to anybody else here does. And I'll do my best to try to modify it. But you know something? When you've got a hold of the, the tail of a tiger that's running forward and you can't let go, that's, you, you don't want to let go, really. You want to let the tiger run. Because when he stops, he turns on me. I don't like that. But here's the thing. We are commanded in Scripture to bear one another's burdens. And I find the same people that complain about things like this in the church, like the color of the carpet or the service not being up to spec or, or, or Phil's not doing his job preaching, uh, singing music. And I'm like, yeah, I know he's not. I've been doing it for him. But, you know, I keep digging at you, brother. I know you're going to get back up here. I, I, I hope soon because Lord knows this is not my gifting. But still, you know, we, we, the same people that I hear that complain about these same things over and over again in churches are the same people that haven't shared their faith in months or even years. They couldn't care less about making disciples. Now, I'm going to throw something out at you that I know might be a little radical. But you know church attendance is in decline. It's an old story. But here's something that's kind of interesting is God doesn't take attendance. What? Yeah, he does. Because I know his agent in the back, uh, Bill, he's good about counting, right? And therefore, if, if, if Bill's doing it, then it must be God there. I, mean, God, I know, Bill, Bill you're, you're a great guy. I love you. But I'm just going to tell you, God is not counting who's here. He's counting the disciples that we're making. Period. That's what he wants. He doesn't care about the bottom line in our budgets. We care, but he doesn't. He cares about the disciples that we're building. Are we doing that? In the 1900s, one of my favorite uh, old Den Denmarkian, Denmarkian? Den I don't know who the... People from Denmark, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. Those of you that are, that are theologians, you're probably, oh, yes, I know all about Soren. He was a great guy. He was a nut. And he, he, was, he was looking at, at, at the state of the church in Denmark. He's like, this is horrible. Something is definitely rotten here. And he says, he says that he's looking at the way the church was going. The church was continually changing how they did things to be more palatable to the people. So that more people will be willing to... This is the 1900s. 
They wanted more people. They had coffee bars and Starbucks. They would have been putting it in, co- in churches back then. They were trying to bring him in. And he just said, you know something? It would be better to just lock the doors and not let anybody in. Or change the sign out front to something that's more palatable, like a, uh, I don't know, a humanitarian group, or, or maybe the YMCA, or, or let's just get something that's just completely non-violent, which is like the home of maybe the future home of the Boy Scouts of America. Now, that's not controversial at all compared to the church, right? But we're not doing that. Think about this, parents. Your 10-year-old comes up to you about eh, 1 or 2, maybe 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and he's just, you know, he's dragging. And you know how 10-year-olds are. It's probably anticipation of having to do some work. So he's just dragging in the house, you know, really tired. And a 10-year-old comes to you and says, oh, Dad, what I really need is a Red Bull. Hey, hand me one, would you? Yeah. <laughs> what parent's going to do that, right? Like, no. If you have a 10-year-old that's that tired, what are you going to do with them? Boy, get your butt to bed and take a nap. Or, hey, I got some trash needs going out. Let's switch you to work, because that's what you really need. You need some activities, manger. You know, because we're parents, right? We're not trying to be mean. And if being mean means that we don't give our kid a Red Bull, then count me mean, right? Because we know what's better for our kids. It's not a Red Bull, it's a nap. It's it's more time that's 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 structured in a way that's useful and conducive. But this is what happens is we listen to people out there telling us how the church ought to be. We listen sometimes to our own wants and desires. We make decisions based upon what brings us the most pleasure. Oh, Pastor, I don't do that. Well, yeah, you do. Think about it. What TV shows do you like? Do you watch the ones you don't like? Only when I'm sitting with my wife. Thank you. What kind of house are you living in? One that's substandard that you don't like? No. What kind of car do you drive? One that you don't like? No. One that you enjoy? What kind of restaurant do you go to? What kind of church do you show up at? The one we like the most. The one that makes us feel so good. Huh. We chase down relentlessly what we want, and if we want it to appear spiritual, we may take a few moments to glance through the Word of God just to make sure we're not stepping on God's toes. Wanting what we want. Huh. I want you to read what the first search actually looked like. Let's go a little further to the, uh, to the right in the book of Acts, chapter 2. This will be the last passage I actually guys turn to, hopefully. Hopefully. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. I'm running out of breath here, guys. So, chapter 2, book of Acts. And I like chapter 2. And I, some of you are like, some of you are turning there and your hands are like shaking. You're like, oh, pray, preacher, where are you going? Talking about supernatural, you're now opening up Acts chapter 2. This is not going to be good. It's not going to be good. Where are we going? Where are we going? Don't worry. We're not going where you think we're going. We're going to go somewhere else where you really don't want us to go. So I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 37, and I want you to see what it is that God is, is telling us, right? And, and I want you to, to, to hear what he has to say. So in chapter, 30, chapter 2, verse 37, book of Acts, he says, Now when they heard this, talking about the, the message that Peter just put forth, after the tongues of fire fell, after the power of God dwelt in them so mightily, so powerfully, that magnified his presence so amazing that, that when he stepped on the stage, he began to speak. He didn't even know if he was speaking the right thing since he was speaking the word of God. And they just, he just poured out the spirit in front of them. And they heard this. And they were pierced to the heart. And Peter said, the rest of the possible brethren, uh, and, uh, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and forgiveness for your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Sounds like a preacher to me. So then, when those who would receive the word were baptized, and and that day they were added 3,000 souls to the church, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone kept feeling the sense of awe, and, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those, all those who had believed were were together and had things, all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all and anyone who might have need. And day by day, continuing in one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now that's a roadmap to church growth, brother. But there was something that, that I don't know if you, you picked up on. There's a couple words that were used occasionally here. One of the words that I find really interesting is, in verse 42, they were continually, and continually, I, I know, Paul or, or, or uh, Phil, you're, you're a science teacher, right? So, so continually, and especially in like scientific reactions, you know, when you, when you pour some, a reagent in one and a reagent in the other and it starts to, to bubble and it, and, it, and it fizzles out and does nothing, right? Then it's not continually, right? But if it continually bubbles, it's constantly going. It never stops. It bubbles, bubbles, bubbles up and over and then you have this huge mess, right? That's not a good thing in that, but, it, but in this, it's a good thing. It's, it's constant. It never ends, right? So continually, continually, he says, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, and breaking of bread, and to prayer. Continually. Continually. I mean, think about this for us as a church, right? And our, our leaders, we gather together and we talk about different things, you know, how we can, you know, we can make the church more acceptable and palatable. And I'm guilty of this too. I'm not preaching more to you. I'm preaching myself. You know, we, we, we do these things all the time. Where I'm guilty of having more conversations about the type of coffee and the cookies that we put out on Sunday morning than we do about the souls and the disciples that we have that we're growing here. And that's, that's wrong. That's my, I know I'm wrong in this. And the truth of the matter is, we got like 90 to 120 minutes a week, right? We, we, we mentioned that with the kids. About 90 to 120 minutes a week. Say that again? 90 to 120 minutes, right? Now, I, I use the minutes because it's a bigger number. We like 90. We like 100. We don't like one hour, two hours, <sighs> two hours. That's all we get a week. And if that's some, some people, that's the only church, that's the only God, that's the only bit of spiritual up moment that they have in the week. And we're expecting that to be, to take the place of everything else. You know, the first church wasn't doing that. The first church was continually devoting themselves to the teaching, to the fellowship, the word of God, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking to myself, what if we came here next Sunday, and I told you we're going to do this ahead of time, and I said, okay, guys, next Sunday, we're going to do a little different format. We're not going to really have a preaching so much. We're going to take the chairs. We're going to arrange them in like a couple concentric circles. We're all going to look at each other. That'll be fun, right, Phil? Um, and we're just going to pray. 
We're going to take the hour and a 15, hour and 20, hour and a half, maybe two hour time block that we allot for our church time. We're going to cancel Sunday school. We're going to bring everybody together and we're going to spend the whole time just praying. I wonder if we would have a large crowd that week. Huh. Yeah. That's not very much fun, is it? But yet, this is what God has called us to do. Devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles. That's the word of God. And to fellowship. That means we get out of our houses, no matter how cold and icy it is, and we go to our neighbors and we share with them our love towards them. That guy Soren Kierkegaard I told you about, he says that Christianity hurts. Serving God is tough. If you make it easy, it's not really serving God. John tells us that if we don't love our neighbors as ourselves and we don't do what he's told us to do, we don't know God. And if we say we know God and we're not doing this stuff, we're in sin. One of the other apostles wrote, This is the part that I get frustrated with, is if we know what is right and we don't do it, we're in sin. Jesus tells us what's right. Devote your time to his word. Devote your time continually to fellowship. And what does that fellowship mean? Breaking of bread. How many times have you eaten with someone else in this congregation this last week? How many times do you continually go out of your way to break bread and to have fellowship with people and to spend hours of our time in prayer towards a holy God? It doesn't happen. That word devoted means to occupy oneself diligently, to stand beside, to never leave. See, the truth is, now look at the next verse after that. It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Verse 43, and many wonders and signs were taking place. I, I had a man once ask me, why do we not see any signs and wonders? Why are people not lame people walking and blind people seeing anymore in the North American church? Why do we not see this anymore all the time happening? And I, and I asked him, I said, maybe because we don't come expecting it, you know? We expect this supernatural awe that these people were getting because everybody likes that. Everybody wants that supernatural transcendent experience. That's why we go to movies. That's why we go to concerts. That's why we, we constantly look for that adrenaline high, that, that moment we step into the building and we just go, Woo! Jesus is here. I would love to have that more often. Truth is, a lot of times we don't have that. We come in here and we're just like, you know, what are you going to do? I'm going to church. Why are you going to church? Well, because that's what you do on Sunday, right? <laughs> the sad part is I have, we have a hard time just getting people to commit to 90 minutes. That's hard. That's really hard. I think we as individuals, we want that supernatural awe. What we don't want is that supernatural devotion that comes before it. I mean, the awe came. Look how it's, it's in Scripture. They had the supernatural devotion, and then they had the awe. You know, we can do all kinds of crazy stuff. And let me tell you something. 
You know, some churches do that. I look on the internet sometimes and look at what other churches are doing to draw people in. There's one church down south, a big church that's got lots of money, and I guess they have way more money than what to do with because they're all, every new visitor they're offering iPads to. It's iPads. You know, I know it's like, where I, I want to go visit that church. I need me a new iPad, right? You know, okay, so they're giving iPads away. You know, I don't know about you guys, but if the Muslims started advertising that if you show up to one of their meetings, you get a free iPad and a latte, you would think, <laughs> I guess Allah's not a very strong God, is he? They got to offer trinkets. But yet we do it. Um, what do we have to do to bring people in? We got an entire row behind Dan that's empty. Nobody's there. Nobody. Dan, what are you doing? Is it because of you? You're chasing people away. Might be. Did <laughs> you shower this morning? <laughs> You know, <laughs> craziness, isn't it? But you know what people bring people in? See, First Baptist Kenai became known as a church where supernatural love abounds. If supernatural unity was here, you want to know why the Muslims don't have to give iPads away to bring people in to wear bombs on their chests and go kill people? It's because they give them a level of unity and connectedness that they don't have anywhere else. Early in my ministry, my first church I was ever a part of, I was a little youth pastor, younger little youth, I don't think I was ever little, but I was um, skinnier, a little skinnier, and um, had a youth group, and I had this guy, his name was Ramon, great guy, loved him. Um, he uh, loved Jesus with all his heart and soul. His brother um, was uh, a gang member, and um, he, he had tattoos and brands. He had near nose piercings. And he, was just, he looked rough. He looked tough. He looked mean, right? And um, that was my first experience with a real gang member outside of books and television and movies, right? I never really experienced anybody. So I began to talk with him and began to share with him. And he came from a, a really rough background. Both he and his brother Ramon had the same mother, different fathers. Her mother, mother was a, um, a prostitute in uh, Puerto Rico and uh, just kept churning out babies. And grandma and grandpa were American citizens, and they did what they could to try to get every baby they could that the mother had and bring them to America, give them a better life. Um, some of the kids they brought over did well, and some of them didn't. This particular young man didn't do well. He got stuck in the gangs. And I asked him, I said, why did you join these gangs? What's, what's up with the gang? He said, he said, because they're my family, they're my homies. They got my back. I never have to worry. And I said, well, you know, we're Christians, you know, we, we, we're, we believe we're the body of Christ, we're a family, we, we, get, we can have your back. If you, if you would accept Christ your Savior, and I was a little new at this whole witnessing thing, I was trying to find a hook to draw in there, trying to, to share the gospel some way, and I, I just, you know, maybe, if, if you accept Christ, maybe we can do that. And he just looked at me and says, if I do that, i got to reject my gang. And they're just not into that. You can't leave a gang. Once you're part of the family, you're there. If I try to leave, it won't go well for me. I go, oh. That got me thinking. Because when I read about the New Testament church, I, th I read about a group that almost resembles a gang, right? 
the kind of people that, that, that draw you in so tightly as family and, and won't let you leave. And it's not that we're going to kill people that, that leave our church, but that we're just so much family, so, so integrally linked that we know each other so well that nobody wants to leave. Because who really wants to leave their family? Because we're one flesh. We're together. We're united. We're focused. We have that supernatural kind of unity that you see in some of these other communities that aren't Christian. I mean, can you imagine one gang member coming up to another gang member and saying, Hey, Rodrigo, how was gang this week? And Rodrigo says, Oh, it was pretty good. Speaker was kind of decent, had some decent music. And the other guy says, Oh, sorry, I missed gang this week. I, life's been real crazy. The boy had a soccer game. The girl had, a, had this other thing. I just couldn't make it. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you imagine that happening in any gang in America? No, it doesn't happen. You know, if you've got to think of an excuse why you didn't show up at church, where's that supernatural devotion? None of it. I know some of you are sitting there saying, wow, you're really getting irritating. You're droning on and on. You're covering points that you've already covered, I know. And I guess it is time that we close this thing down. And I would like to to just close it by saying this. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, there really is no better gang to be a part of. And even though we don't act like it all the time, we do love you, and we can love you that way too. And we're getting better. And I encourage you, if you don't know him, please, use our time at the altar wisely. But this message really wasn't for the sinner that was lost. This message was for those that call ourselves the saints of God. And I'm going to leave this question with you that we're going to take up next week. And I want you to think about this, that this week. It's a question I've already asked you. Next Sunday, are we coming in to this building looking for the supernatural? And I would ask you to ask yourself, what would that look like? We've got great Sunday school teachers, and I know that they do a good job teaching Sunday school, but maybe, maybe Mike, Terry, maybe next Sunday, at the beginning, you might ask your Sunday school students the same question. See what their responses are. The question is, did we come looking for the supernatural? And if it showed up, would we even recognize it? Let's pray. Dearly Father, we love you so much. And we know that we've, we've gone down this road many times in the past. And Lord, we know that we are children of yours. And as children, we oftentimes need to have repetition moments where we are constantly repeating your word. Not because it means something different, but because we sometimes lose sight of what it really means. Father, I ask that you'll do that this week as you encourage us to seek you diligently. Father, I ask that you'll just empower us in a way we've never been empowered before. Father, I ask that you'll inspire us and encourage us to seek that supernatural love and unity and devotion that you've called us to. Because we know, Lord, it's supernatural. It means it's above the natural. It means it's not something we're able to do, Lord. But I know that if you empowered, if you give it to us, if your gift of the Holy Spirit at salvation was truly that gift of your spirit, we know, Lord, we have the seeds of the supernatural blowing within us. And there's nothing that we can't accomplish through you. Father, I ask that you'll go before us this morning 
and you'll take us where you want us to go and you'll lead us in that supernatural way that we might come back in this building excited, enthused, and ready for something amazing and supernatural to happen. And Father, I ask that you'll go before us. Keep us your servants. Lord, I just put this out there. If there's a single person in here that doesn't know you, there's someone out here that's on the fence that doesn't quite understand what salvation really means. Lord, I just ask that you will not let them leave here today without before having your soul be breathed into them through your word. And that, they're, that they might find new life, new purpose in coming to know you as their Savior. And we just ask you now to allow us to be your servants. Lord, we put this service in your hands. Use it as you will. We ask this now in the name of your Son, our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The altar is open. Please stand as we sing. Jesus paid it all. Amen.